Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event in which we celebrate the writing life of Renee. Renee is a playwright, novelist, poet, memoirist and blogger, and she has documented New Zealand's social history in the latter part of the 20th century in acclaimed work, including the plays Wednesday to Come and Setting the Table. Of Scots and Ngāti Kahunganu descent, Renee blogs weekly and publishes her new novel, a trilogy, chapter by chapter online. New Zealand novelist Stephanie Johnson joined her to discuss her life's work. We hope you enjoy this session. Welcome, everybody, to A Writing Life, an hour with, uh, uh, with Renee. I'm Stephanie Johnson, and I have to tell you all to make sure your phones are turned off. This late in the, in the festival, I'm sure you already know that. And I am so delighted to have this opportunity to chair this session. In the early 80s, when I was just starting out as a playwright, Rene was a great inspiration and mentor to me. And this was in the days when there were no writing courses and no organised mentorship. So they were kind of wild mentorships. They kind of just grew up out of the ground. And I was very, very lucky. And I count myself very lucky to be able to welcome Renee to the festival some 30 years later and talk to us today about her life and work as a playwright, as a novelist and a blogger. So welcome to the festival, Renee. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I was, think, I was thinking that perhaps we could start off talking a little bit about that time um, when we first met, which was in the early 80s, and um, you were, that was when you were writing Wednesday to Come and Setting the Table and those, those first big plays and what the theatre scene was like then for, for you as you began to get traction as a playwright. Well, I had written a um, compilation of... Noel Coward's and Gertrude Lawrence's um, the plays he wrote and the bits that she did and it, um, I just picked out lines here and there and then that couldn't go on because the woman who was going to play Gertrude Lawrence couldn't uh, couldn't do it so um, I thought it was a shame to waste it really <laughs> waste not want not so I thought oh well I'll send it to Mercury they can only say no and they did but he said it so nicely, um, <laughs> and he said, we wondered if you had, um, you know, a play or something we could read. And I said, yeah, sure. Um, I haven't quite finished it, and I actually hadn't even started it. <laughs> so I wrote um, Setting the Table, and I think for the time, it was probably quite a shock. There were four lesbians living in a house in Auckland, and, you know, re reviewing a... Um, um, uh, practicing a review, and um, it, well, it, it, it did really well. Um, and in the, you know, in the end, Mercury put it on a, as a production. But they did give me a, a week-long, um, over the days, a week-long workshop, mm. and that was really interesting. And uh, that was where Sebastian Black was the um, dramaturg, and. Um, yeah, it was great. So, but when the, they had a rehearsed reading at the end of the week-long workshop, 
and a lot of theatre luminaries came and after it was over I went out and sat down and um, one of them said to me, um, could I prove that women were being beaten in Auckland? <laughs> and I said, yes, I thought I could. Um, mm. So do you, do you think that, because you were really, you know, leading the charge there, there weren't, there weren't many women playwrights in New Zealand at that time, especially not on that, you know, no. higher... higher it, it was a very difficult, really, for directors, now I think about it, in ret retrospect, because they were really used to playwrights being dead or overseas. <laughs> and, um, and to have a woman <laughs> saying, no, 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 that's not what I meant, that's not what I meant at all, um, was a little bit of a surprise or a shock or whatever. Um, but, it, you know, we, someone said, I just walked on and kicked the doors open and said, I'm here, this is, you know, th these are my plays. It wasn't quite like that, but I had a very, very lucky run. I really did. I had, um, I wrote a couple of short plays and Elizabeth Cray um, appeared in both of them and so I mean what more could I want and then Mercury did the setting the table and then I was invited by Broadsheet to do a, um, a kind of review to open their um, conference at um, the grammar school, the girls grammar school and because the person they'd had to do it wasn't going to be there. Were you in it? Were you? There was four women in it. No, I was in a later play. I was in Groundwork. Oh, yes. Where yes, I had to yes. pass Joanna Paul. Yeah. Thank you, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like me passing her. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of that was a play of Renee's um, that was about the tour. Yes, and it was a, that was sort of a bit later. That was sort of the mid eighties, yes. wasn't it? Yes. So the the so the, you, do you consider those days as the very beginning of your writing co career, or you as um, when you were a younger person, did you write stories and yeah, poems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, start I started writing to sell. I always I always wrote to sell. I didn't. I wasn't the kind of person who wrote things in a diary or did that kind of thing. I don't think we had enough money to buy a diary, even if I'd wanted to. Uh, I had what would now be called a deprived childhood, but I had one really lucky break. My mother taught me to read when I was five and she taught me to work. And those two things, I think, have made it possible for me to be a writer because if you don't read and you don't know how to work, mm. it doesn't matter how much talent you've got, you're not going to make it. And um, so I, I got married and uh, had three kids and I was thinking about doing something um, to bring in some extra money and I thought oh, I'll, I'll try writing. And in those days, of course, you, there were lots of out outlets, there were lots of markets, there were magazines and the newspapers took things like book reviews or, you know, short little um, articles. So I used to go to the doctors and just to um, look at the magazines to find out, you know, how they did it, really. See, even then I had, I knew, I knew you had to learn. It wasn't just like a, a muse would come along and, um, and whisper the words in your ear. Um, so I had that idea. So I wrote a few things and um, we managed to buy a second-hand typewriter and I 
the first two or three came back, but then they started accepting them. And then I had the biggest um, stroke of luck. I read in the Women's Weekly or somewhere that the, there was a Hawke's Bay branch of the New Zealand Women Writers. So I rang up the woman whose photograph was on the article and she invited me over. And that was great because they asked me to join them. And I think I learned as much from them as I've ever learned from anyone else. They were, there were about five, I would have been six. They were all, uh, except for one other, they were all university graduates. Um, they were lived in the country. So this this was in Hawke's Bay. Bay. Whereabouts in Hastings? Or? Um, I was living in um, Taradale. Right. Um, they were living um, Waipawa, um, you know, all, all around the mm. place, Hastings. And we used to meet um, once a month at each other's places just to make it fair for the driving. And, and was this when your children were still small? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And... It, it was, um, I learned a lot, and I, I mean, I had a chip on my shoulder a mile wide because I'd hated not having to, I didn't, I started work when I was 12 because if I went to work and bought some money and then my brother and sister would be able to go to high school. So there was no question, mum just said to me, you'll have to go out to work. Mm -hmm. So I worked at the woolen mill, I went to the woolen mills and um, worked there. But I've always resented, and um, probably still do a bit, that I didn't have any education, at least any formal education after that until I was about 39 when I did an extramural uh, degree. And um, so being in this group of women, all very well educated and accomplished, and two of them having already published and stuff like that, was really very, very good for me. And although I resented bitterly that they had all these um, advantages that I didn't have, I still had enough sense to learn. And I think the first short story I had ever I ever got published was um, an exercise that was set for the group. Um, that they knew that there was no such thing as, as the first draft being wonderful. They knew that you had to write and rewrite and, and all that sort of thing. And they made the best um, sort of job of it that they could before they sent it off. So to me, it was um, it was a real. I was really, really lucky. We used to come down to Wellington um, every now and again when we wanted to get away from the kids, and um, and we weren't all that popular with the Wellington branch of the New Zealand Women Writers Association because we used to sort of be. Um, We'd have too much to say, and we would sit talking loudly to each other, and, um, and, and people would vacuum around us because we wouldn't leave. And it was, um, we were always, yeah, it was just, I remember those days with great affection, and I think they had a huge effect on me. And that, that was a form of men mentorship, kind of group it was, mentorship it was, in a way, wasn't yeah. it? I think the other thing, Steph, talking about the 80s, the other thing that really, really made me realize I had something to say was doing the road shows for Broadsheet. Uh, we went all around, the, uh, we went to the big centers the first time. The second time we went, we did it, we went to all the little centers as well. You know, in Reefton, we got about 35 women there on a really, really cold, horrible night. It was just incredible. And 
I, I know when, I think, we, I don't know how many places we went to, I lost count, but when we got to the last one, Coromandel, I knew that I had something to say that people wanted to hear. And that was a huge boost, really, to me. And it was after that, I think, that I got the um, the skills, really, and, and also the strong desire to write something about my mother's generation because they were largely overlooked. And working-class people only appeared as maids or as the butt of some sort of humour. And I, I saw these women as heroes. I mean, my mother was bad-tempered. She swore. She liked to drink. She liked to read. Um, she she smoked all the time. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but but uh, she was a hero. Like, heroes don't have to be perfect. They're not perfect, none of them. And so I wrote... Uh, she, my father had shot himself. She lived for 15 years after that. She died when she was 42, and I thought she died of a broken heart. And I wanted to write the play for her, and so I did. Because one of the things I remember you telling me, correct me if I'm wrong, because like a lot of writers, I, my memory can be sometimes a bit fictionalised. I remember you telling me that when you were a little girl, you didn't know that you were Māori, or that you certainly didn't know you were Ngāti Kahanunu, and so, no, no. and so, um, and your mother told you you were Spanish. Is that right? No, no, she didn't tell me I was Spanish. She just said there was Spanish in the family, and there are in a lot of Māori families. It's, not, yes. it's really, um, but I didn't know anything um, I, when I was. I can't remember. How old? I went to Wairau to live, and I did all the um, research then on my whakapapa. And, and what's, what, was that your mum or your yeah, dad? Yeah, as mother, mum. She, we lived in a Pākehā community. When my father died, when my father shot himself, um, the job went with the house, and so we had to leave the house. And we went to live in a one room, uh, one room in an old villa um, I, rented by Daisy. And um, so we uh, we lived there, and I mean it was a Parkhouse community. She stood out, and everyone thought it was her fault uh, because you know mixed marriages and that they all talked like that, and possibly still do for all I know. But she had this fierce determination that um, we were going to sort of get educated as best as she could and uh, she taught me to read before I went to school consequently I ripped through the primers in a year the four you know things and then I um, got to when I got to um, what we called standard six then um, of course I was a lot younger than everybody else but when I applied for the job at the woolen mills I said I was 15 and he pretended to believe me. Mm. Mm. So you were, you, how many siblings, you and... I've got, my, well, my sister's dead. There was my brother and then my sister, mm. yeah. I was in charge of them. That's why I like being the boss. <laughs> I've always liked it. Uh, <laughs> Mum put me in charge of them when I was about four. <laughs> and because she liked to sit on the couch and smoke and read. And um, who wouldn't? And... Um, <laughs> And I just had to see they kept their noses clean and went to the toilet and da-da-da-da-da. And, um, and I really liked that. I liked 
I, I think I have control issues. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think a lot of us old, oldest oldest siblings do, but it's it's actually encouraged in us by our mothers, isn't it? Yes. So um, going back to what you were talking about before with reef and travelling to going to reef and getting all those women, those were such um, heady times when yes. they were that sort of uh, that, that big flush of um, yes. feminism. I mean, it certainly wasn't the first wave, you know, that had been years before with Kate Shepherd, etc. But it was a big wave of feminism. How, how do you think um, feminism? What does feminism mean to you now in your mid 80s? Is it is it um, when you look at the, you know how younger women are and how you think I can only speak of my own far now and they're um, very staunch mm. um, they send me <laughs> petitions to sign <laughs> and um, <laughs> in case I've missed them or something um, <laughs> yeah I'm and they and their friends are the same um, I went to what was called an event recently <laughs> it was my great-granddaughter's um, first birthday I have lots of great granddaughters. This was, a, I don't know what number this one this was. But anyway, <laughs> I went to it. It was held in a bar in Wellington, and uh, there were little kids all over the floor playing with toys and things. And um, I can't, I've lost the track now why I'm saying Fem this. Feminine, feminine. Oh, yes. And there were lots of people there who knew me, young women, whom I'd been introduced to because they were my granddaughter's friends. There's two granddaughters who live in Wellington. And, um, and they all, yeah, um, I'm amazed because so often my friends get um, quite disappointed. Um, but my experience is not like that. And I guess in a way, feminists have never really been in the majority, have they? I mean, I first read about feminism by reading um, uh, Vera, um, you know, Testament of Youth, Vera Britton. And I can't have been all that old when I read it. And I just loved it. I, it really spoke to me. The writing's discursive, almost Victorian, a little bit, you know, overblown at times. The poetry's abysmal. But, um, <laughs> well, to my eyes now. Mm. But the story, her story about her part in the Great War and that is... Um, is wonderful, and it's all from a feminist point of view. So I'd already read that when I came to Auckland and, mm. um, and you know, was overcome by the second wave myself. Mm. I felt that I'd come home, in a way. Um, I'd always been outspoken. <laughs> uh, lippy, I'm call I was called. And um, I'd always had my own ideas about the inequality of things as I saw them. And I suppose it was an easy transformation to shouting on street corners, really. Mm. 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 So if we could move on a bit now to your most recent work, which um, you've been publishing on online. But there were, I know there was an interim period there where you were publishing more conventionally. So how, how did it come about that you shifted from... Um, you know, um, you know, book, writing books like Willy Nilly and then to the more recent ones when you've been publishing them online? Um, I, I wanted to try a different... I mean, I've been teaching all these years and, and um, either doing my own workshops or teaching creative writing for Fetidaya um, Polytechnic. And um, I just wanted to... Um, Make, like, make sure I could still do it because I hadn't really um, 
written anything big. And so, and I want, and I'd read um, some uh, chiclet, some superior chiclet, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, well, I thought, and I loved the uh, style. And I thought, well, well I can, <coughs> surely I can do that. <laughs> and so I gave it a go. And um, I, I, I found I had to really pull myself up all the time to keep on the track that I decided I wanted to do. And what has evolved is that I wrote, and I, then I thought, well, um, Dickens did it, so why not? So I put a chapter a week on the on my website. How far ahead are you each time? Are you? Oh, are you pretty pretty well. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare. No, I was going to say that'd be nerve wracking. Oh, yes, because what say I froze in the middle of the week or, <laughs> or got sick? No. Um, so I wrote the first one, which was um, people liked, to my surprise, because the heroine is. And that's um, too many cooks. Yeah, uh, you know she's a kind of irritable feminist, pedantic and... But you know, the surprise, these books, if you haven't read them yet, they're very romantic. Yes, they are. They are. Mm. Well, that's the, that's the deal, isn't it? I suppose. With a checklist. This is the deal. And of course, I do have a weakness. I do like happy endings, and I've always liked them. But, um, I mean, sometimes they aren't, but I do like them. And so I gave in to that weakness. Why not, I thought... Um, I mean, I'm 82 or whatever it was when I started them. If I can't be a bit self-indulgent now, and I I'm also met someone in, in um, the, on the main street in Ortaki, <laughs> the main street in Ortaki, um, <laughs> my friend Sarah Dallahunty, and I said to her, I'm sick of this. I go to the library and there's nothing I want to read when I'm tired, and I just don't want to know about the you know, the problems of the world. I've had enough of them by then. And um, I've probably written, you know, read some things. And um, and she said, well, you just have to write it yourself. And then I said, yeah, well, the thing is, what I've thought of needs a play. I don't want to do Shakespeare. I don't want to pay <laughs> for the, the pleasure of using someone else's, it really, that, that I might have to these days. And she said, oh, you can have one of mine. So she let me have her oh, that's how children's play, The Last yes. Gasp Cafe, comes into Too Many Cooks, yes. uh, which is the story about a, um, a, um, a drama teacher, mm. Hester, yeah. Who mm. comes, and the, both of the books um, are set in, the, in Porohiwi, which yes. is a fictitious yes. town. It used to be located um, sort of between Wairau and Napier, and now it's kind of crossed the island and <laughs> is now on the west, like very close to where Autaki is, I suppose. Um, but that's writing, isn't it? You, you, you've got some power. You can do that. And people will, will just accept it. No one's ever commented to me the fact that Porohiwi has now slipped down the island <laughs> and is on the west coast now. Um, yes, it, it's, it's the only sense of power a writer has, really. Uh, it's probably a good spot for you to do your, okay. your reading. Okay. This is an excerpt from the first chapter um, of Too Many Cooks. Three years later, she was ready. It wasn't that she didn't see that an eye for an eye was the only way to go right from the start, but when you're normally a law-abiding person, 
committing a serious crime doesn't really occur to you as a solution until you've canvassed other options like making their names public. She scrapped that as unsatisfying. They'd still have somewhere to live, wouldn't they? Bring a civil case against them would take all her money as well as a lot she didn't have. Take the evidence to the police? What evidence? And what if she didn't find them? At least she'd have tried. For the first year afterward, she'd been too sick at heart, too wounded, too drained to think coherently about revenge. All she knew that first year was that she had to keep putting one foot in front of the other, somehow getting herself back together again. She made a plan. One, save the money to live on for six months. Two, find somewhere in Porohiwi to hole up for a month or two while she found out who set fire to the house. Three, make up a reason for going on the road so that when she left, it would be because of that, not because she'd burned down someone's house. So, one, she'd saved the money. Two, she had somewhere to stay. Three, reason for going on the road? Simple, to gather material for a play she wanted to write. When anyone asked her what the play was about, she'd just say she didn't want to talk about it. You know how it is. And they would nod as though they didn't think she was a pretentious fuckwit. <laughs> she'd never written a play before, but God knows she'd read and directed plenty, so coming up with a bad script in a few months shouldn't be too difficult. People did it all the time. <laughs> So too too many cooks is a is a is a good is a good read. It keeps you on your on your toes as a reader too, because there's so many little twists and turns. And there's also some of Renee's great humour. There's um, Hester and Delia are sisters, and um, and actually the sisterly relationship is something you're quite interested in. It seems because it comes into the into the next yes, book as yes, well. Yes, yes. And Hester is plain and red-haired and stocky. <laughs> she looks like a troll doll. That's why there's a. <laughs> That's why the troll doll's on the cover. <laughs> and um, she's, she, and Rena has it in the book, she's never learned to change a tyre, and she remarks very acerbically, men have to be good at something. <laughs> and then there's um, somebody else later on who talks about how the race issues of New Zealand will be solved in the bedroom. That's what I mean about her being romantic, you think. <laughs> um, and Hester, as a heroine, I, I was just interested in this... Um, because with, with some writers, as they get older themselves, they, they, their characters get older too. And Hester, I worked it out, was born in about 1972. That's right, yes. And I just wondered how you found it, writing about, um, you know, my much, much, having a much, much younger central... Well, I checked out a few things with my granddaughters about, you know, um, things they might know uh, that Hester would know. And as far as the literary quotes and the, all that kind of knowledge about plays and stuff, I made her a drama teacher so that she would know that anyway. So I could fling in quite a bit of stuff I know, um, even though she's younger. And, yeah. Mm. And another little um, lovely quote that I picked out, which reminded me of something rather sort of doleful um, event from our past, where you write, can you separate the maker from the artwork? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it, this made me think of, um, of Mervyn Thompson, yes. where, um, who Renee and I both knew, of course, and um, various other people in the audience, I can see that I think probably knew him as, as well. And that was one of the sort of great debates, wasn't it, of the uh, 80s that... Um, 
you know, how, how if, if, if a man is accused of doing something or has done, you know, how do you, how do you separate his, mm. as do you still? Well, um, I made it very clear, both at Broadsheet and everywhere else I went, that I don't believe in vigilante justice anyway. And whether one thinks someone is guilty or not of something, um, because there was, no a, there was a story going around, wasn't it, that, that it actually followed a plot of... Yes, of my play, um, um, set, Setting the Table. Mm. And it was, it was great for the papers because um, they didn't... Everyone remained very silent about who was involved in attacking Mervyn. And um, so I was the obvious um, one because I'd <laughs> written the play. So I tolerated all that. I, in fact, after a while, I could hardly bear to answer the phone, and the police came round and all that kind of thing. And I greeted them in a kind of butterfly dress I was wearing. <laughs> um, I certainly didn't uh, sort of look like the lesbian feminist that they'd been told I was, but that's okay. Um, we come in all <laughs> in all guises. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I. But then there was another thing that. I, I hated as well, and that was Mervyn started sticking stuff in my letterbox and, um, you know, making accusations. Because on the morning after the attack, that my phone went, and it was Mervyn, and he said, "I've been attacked. Did you know anything about it?" And I said, "No, I'm coming. I'll come round." So uh, the woman I was living with at the time, we both went round, and and we had a cup of tea. Priscilla was there. Um, and he, lo he looked terrible, and I was really upset that he could have thought it was me. After a while, though, he did stick to that, and um, he said some things like, I had done it to advance my career at the expense of his, and silly things like that, because really, we'd had, Mervyn had been a source of great humour mm. to me, um, unintentionally a lot of the time, but even so, <laughs> uh, he had. And um, I remember once in Wellington we were at, I think it might have been a play market workshop or something, and he saw we were walking down the street back to the hotel and he saw this woman being um, bullied, or, and he went straight over and, and um, told the guy off and everything. Then he took the woman and um, and I went over and we... Because he said to me, you stay here, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I went over and we soothed the woman and we bought her um, a cup of tea or something. And then when when she was leave when he was leaving, because she wouldn't she wouldn't um, let us, you know, buy her a taxi and get her a taxi or anything like that, he said to her, now look, if there's any other problem... Here's Renee's number, <laughs> and you ring her. And, that, and I thought, oh, I could have some of these drug dealers or whatever it was, because I was pretty sure it was drug-related, the, yes. the whole scene. And that really made me laugh. I mean, I always giggled about that, my um, horror at the thought of someone coming up the fire escape at the People's Palace <laughs> looking for me. Mm. But well, maybe maybe he didn't want her to think he was trying to pick yes, her up. Yes, I think so. He, I think so. Yes. Was, was but I was really um, in the end in in um, where I lived on Richmond Road. In the end, I asked Greg and Dean to have a word with him because I said if he doesn't stop putting things in the letterbox, then I am going to call the police, and that'll create even more. Um, 
fast. So they did. They said whatever it happened, whatever it did, whatever was done, was done. And he kept, he stopped it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So whether a or real not, you, shame, were, whether or not you, were, you were thinking about him when you wrote that one little line, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, I was actually thinking of um, someone uh, closer to home, closer to Otaki. But I think it is a dilemma that one can um, not separate the art from... Mm. Yeah, and I don't really know what the answer is. Um, we can look at a work of art and say, yeah, they were a shit, but we still like the art, mm. um, or we can dismiss the whole thing out of hand because, you know, they were a shit. Mm. So I think everyone has to make up that mind for herself, and, um, yeah. Mm. You said something a little bit earlier about um, Hester not being a particular, or you didn't say she was unlikable. You said um, she's irritable. Ir irritable. And she, she's pedantic, which mirrors my yes, she personality. Loves, um, well, I, I agree. I agree with a lot of the things. She she has a preoccupation with apostrophes. <laughs> yes, so do I. <laughs> well, with people using them in the and wrong and place. And putting them in the, in the wrong place. She's at the, in the course of the book. She's learning Tereo. Yes. And um, she's instead of saying fuck, she says Medusa. Yes, that's right. She's made up her mind that she will stop swearing. <laughs> and so she's uh, decided to take this Greek goddess and, you, and use that for, you know, fuck it, Al. And um, so she, she's not all that um, successful, but may, in the main she is. And so she says, oh, Medusa, when she, what she really wants to say is something else. And but it works for her. Mm. Yeah. And and the, and and the um she's also um, quite highly sexed and um she's gone through a period of her life which she refers to as the time when it was S W A T M. Yes. And that must is it sleep Se with sleep no, with all the men? No, sex with anything that moves. Oh! <laughs> I it was sleep with all the men. I no, no. Sex with anything that moves, that's worse, Renee. I know, I know, I know. And in, and in fact, because Hester's very heterosexual, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, and, um, and And at one point, I mean, this is a slightly, I mean, I, I, I thought this was, a, you know, a very interesting thing. She's, um, <clears throat> you know, there wasn't a man available. So um, she has had this arrangement with this immigrant, Rashid, paying him $20 a time. <laughs> No, it only lasted for two days. Oh. Yeah. But she did pay him. <laughs> the only guy she's ever paid for sex, she remembers. Uh, because then after they're kind of grown up a bit, she meets him again at a wedding. And yes. he's married. And, yes, so she just hopes. But she, then she realizes he's not the kind of guy who would tell. Mm. mm. And, in, and besides that, they enjoyed themselves, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I think you know that's one, one. That's one of the you know it's a, one of the, the you know great strength as a writer when you can have characters who do unlike well not unlikable but, but sort of risky things where you're risking uh, the the possibility of a, a, a reader. Uh, want, you know, then dismissing that yeah, thing, thinking yeah. I don't share that moral code with that character, so therefore mm. I, I, um, I don't, I don't like them. So in, in the in the um, next book, the Once Bitten, uh, is also set in um, Porohiwi, and Hester appears again in that book, but she's not in the spotlight. Um, and it's once again, it's it's um, 
it, it's a it's a, a novel that centres itself around the production of a of a yes, play. Yes, and it also has a bit of a laugh at poets. Yes. And, um, which I really I, I really loved doing that, and um, yeah. He's but, a sort of a James K. Baxter kind of character, isn't he? The father that appear, reappears. Yes, yes, he is, but yes, yes. Um, the main character has a boy that she um, that was born about uh, ten years before the story opens, and she's told him that his father is dead, and then the father turns up. But she also is a kind of um, she's a kind of poet who thinks her work is crap and only goes in for a competition because Daisy, I've resurrected Daisy from Daisy and Lily, and she's in all the books, this old um, lesbian, and uh, who's very, she's still very competent and very knowledgeable. And um, now I've forgotten what I was going to say again. We were, we were talking about um, how, with, with, with the... With Harriet, yeah. Yes, yeah, so how, how you, can, you can have... Um, you know, because you've because very cleverly created this town, you can you can sort of slip in and out of of the of characters' lives. Where they have you know, and have one character who's central in yeah. in when one novel, but then she's just there in the in the um, in the in the next one as a sort of a you know, she's just she's Harriet's yes, neighbour, isn't she? I wanted she? to. Um, I made up this place called Vogel Place, and I wanted to write three novels about the characters of Vogel Place, and in each one, the, the Daisy appears. She, she lives there. She appears. But the three women characters, the three heroes of these novels, are, um, they've all got something to do with uh, writing, and all, all of them have something to do with theatre. Uh, it enables me to talk about local theatre, um, small town theatre um, and the small town atmosphere. Uh, it enables me to introduce um, varying characters and have have some fun. Mm. And, po um, and politics too. You t you, there's a, the Commonwealth Party. Why why did you call it the Commonwealth Party? Because they're the National Party, are they really? Um, I guess they are in a way. Um, well, I wanted to. I didn't want the MP for Ōtaki to think I was getting at him. <laughs> Although, of course, I am. <laughs> but, I, I mean, it's, it's really good to not choose a name that is current in New Zealand in, as regards um, uh, parties because I wanted to be free to make up um, the things I wanted to make up that they stood for, and I wanted... I have a character who's an MP for that party, and I just wanted to just have some fun, really, at the expense of um, but you, you politicians. Know, there's another little quote I copied out because I just loved it. Because this is where I, 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 my, where I grew up. I grew up as, you know, my father very much um, working class, but. Tory. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and, and uh, uh, Rene writes, no one is quite as programmed as the conservative working class, Lola reckons, this character Lola sings. They just wait for Big Daddy to make pronouncements they agree with to maintain the status quo, that is, while the rich get richer and the poor lose their jobs. Mm. And um, I just thought that really nailed it. Uh, you know, this, um, this, the, 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 the level of trust that the conservative working class 
have in the government that they won't they won't do anything to no well you well my my um, brother-in-law um always mm. voted for Muldoon he was working mm. class from um, mm. you know South Island well Muldoon presented himself as a man for the small businessman so yes. a tradesman you know yeah yeah Mm. So, so you still, even though you call them the Commonwealth Party, I mean, we yeah. know, we know. Yes, we know. and I mean, one has to remember <laughs> that one's readers are bright, bright, intelligent sort of people. They're going to pick up the, in, you know, in between the lines. Like, I think I've got something in the first novel about Hexter, Hester, who, um, who likes subtext, you know, and um, looks for plays that have that, and... Yeah, and so I, I kind of credit my readers with having that kind of intelligence too, and and they are, they are. Mm. And Harriet, um, in this in the second one, she um, as a child she read the first eight books of the Bible. Yeah, well, she was made to, you know, told to. Yeah. Yes, and, yeah. and 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 sort of from that had this great, you know. Um, in her character was what was instrumental in her love of poetry and I just wondered did you have much religion or religious yeah, instruction yeah. as a child? Um, I was sent to the we were sent to the Methodist Sunday School uh, uh, principally so mum could have a lie in on Sundays mm. and and yeah I, um, I was got very interested in the Bible um, and read it I've read it twice through before I was I don't know I mean I was a very strange precocious little girl really and I read everything, for example. And that would have been the great, that would have been the St. James, you know, so that's hard it reading. It's not, you know, but good you see, news I can still quote, I, I still can quote, and I can still, I still remember the first eight books, and all, we must have been taught to do that in Sunday school, I suppose. Mm. And, and it, look, it, it, I don't regret that for one minute. I don't see how anyone, and I've got that in the novel too, mm. can understand Victorian poetry without understanding at least something about the Bible. Mm. I really don't. And so I, I, you know, I'm quite grateful for that education. And as well, the last Methodist minister that I was there for was kind of quite radical. And he, he belonged to this, you know, Friends of China and various other things. And I realized there was a sort of radical arm of the Methodist Church that I'd entirely overlooked, I'd never been told about. So mm. then I read a bit about it, and um, it, and also the thing is too that I, I just read without understanding what I was reading. For example, one of my neighbours down the same street <clears throat> was a man from England. He and his wife had come to live there, and he used to walk to the bus, the workers' bus, we called it at the same time as I did and we would and we'd talk and he found out that I was a, you know a great reader and he must I must have said something and he said would I like to read his copies of John of London's Weekly <laughs> which is now no longer and he used to lend them to me and I you know I must have only been 14 and to me now I would not expect a child of 14 to even want to read them but I, I i'm not saying i understood them but i read them and then when i left the woolen mills and went to work at a printing factory in right in napier on dickens street i went to the um, public library there in my lunch hour and i just read like a vacuum cleaner i would choose a shelf a shelf like opera or ballet or painting or whatever and i just read every book that was on the shelf 
and now I have a mind that's like a rag bag of, you know, bits and pieces that I um, I can call on quotes and all that kind of thing. But it was, when I look, when I think of it, it was really extraordinary. Um, I don't know what I thought I was doing. I think I thought I was educating myself. But also, obviously, you were experiencing this voracious intellectual hunger. Yeah. You know, you wanted, you wanted to, to fill your I wanted head to up with... I wanted to understand everything. Mm. Well, now I know that I know nothing, so that's... that's <laughs> I mean, at that, at that time, I thought I knew everything. You know, it was I think, all... I think when you... Well, not so much... You, you probably didn't think you knew it, but you thought you could know everything. There, there, there might come a time when you would know everything if you... No, I used to think if they just did what I thought was right, they would be all right. <laughs> I used to think that. I used to sit on the bus... And I used to redesign people's clothes, what they were wearing, and I'd give them some better lipstick, and I'd do their hair. And by the time I got to my stop for getting off, I'd really remade. I, I was a hugely. I lived in my head. Mm. I, I knew nothing about life. Real, like um, I knew nothing about sex. I was when I was walking to school when I was in standard six. Um, one of them, one of the girls said to me. Oh, um, do you get your monthlies yet? And I said, no, 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 we just get the new idea. <laughs> I was just absolutely so um, not with it, mm. but I lived in, the, I lived in books. Yeah. 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 Now, we've got about 15 minutes to go, and you wanted to... Renee was going to give us another little brief, brief reading, and then we'll um, bring the house lights up and have some... Questions. Okay, I just wanted to read you, um, if I can find it, here it is, something I wrote for my blog and I just wanted to read it to you. Yes, we haven't talked about your blog. But... Naomi comes to cook. She brings the salad, green beans, red pepper, garlic, pine nuts. We drink red wine, talk about how what is given, land, a heart, is forever, this year, next year, sometime, never how one falls in love, and why? What was it really that changed my world? There were days when I thought if I explained the position clearly, it would all be okay. Now I know better. I fell in love with the principle, I say, but she's my moko after all. So I say, it began, the laughter, the tears, one day, one moment, one beat, I looked out, all these kids playing in my backyard, and whammo, it occurred to me that if we lived there, my kids would be classed as coloured. There, there would be none of this here business, cowboys and Indians, a Chinese sheriff, a Maori good guy, he had the hat, Pākehā Maori Indians behind bushes or round the corner or up on the woodshed ch chucking plums. I hope you don't mind me asking. She places the lightly fried halloumi on top of the salad. Everything starts with a moment, and that moment leads to a letterbox with fuck off bitch on it, and that leads to Fouls Park and Patu and who cleans the toilet, and why don't we say anything when he hits her, and why, 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 and then why not? Simple. One moment leads to another, to this moment, when she leans back on the couch, we sip wine, and she does not ask, was it worth it, Nanny? So I say, it's the salad, the mix of chemistry and context, 
the aftertaste of moments, some bitter as rocket, heady as mint, or rye as chives, your choice, my choice, dressings of oil, vinegar, rue, or rosemary, I regret nothing, I say. Nothing? Nothing. <laughs> It's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, God. Okay. Compose myself now, having done that. Um, yes, it, it seemed incredible to me that people could say, when I say people, I mean network executives, um, that there wasn't a sufficient audience for this story. When I read the book, and I was so compelled by it, and a part of that, I have to admit, is that I thought, this, this is the, the thing about history, you know, there was only 10 years in it. Mm. Um, those girls in the novel, they were having their illegitimate babies in 1961, weren't they? Early 60s, which means that they had been born in the late 40s. You know, 10 or 12 years later, I was born. So that would have been me, easily could have been me, except that everything had changed. In, in that little space of time, just social changes, availability of contraception, all that. But I was really compelled by how narrow that gap was and mm. really related to that story. And my youngest brother is adopted, so that was a very personal connection too. Yes, battled on with the um, network executives and their indifference, and I just, I knew that the story was fantastic, and I knew that if it was on television, a lot of people would watch it. So I just kept knocking on the door until it opened, because there was a network executive who'd been married four times and his second wife had that in her history. <laughs> so he got it. Uh, you know, he, he read it at 4 a.m. one day and then said, we're going to make this. And so finally it did. And I think it was meant to be that way because um, if, if I'd first got to make it when I'd wanted to make it, uh, Keisha Castle-Hughes would have been six and she wouldn't have yes. been able to be in it. <laughs> and um, Rena Owen wouldn't have been yeah, old enough yeah, to be in it. So yeah. I, I got the dream cast and the cherry on the cake, you know, you, you were so vindicated, they were so wrong, you were so right. <laughs> it got the highest ratings of any Sunday theatre drama that whole year. <laughs> Thank you, Rena. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.